And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome back to the uh, show this morning. It's Tuesday already. Uh, yesterday, a uh, bit of a uh, conundrum yesterday. Couldn't do a show yesterday. Brent had a dental emergency. <laughs> Sucks getting old, doesn't it? <laughs> so, anyway, he's back, so we're back. And this is to show you how important his job is. We can't have a show without him here. So, you know, just goes to show you, this is what you call, for you younger people, this is what you call job security. If you want job security, you have a job that nobody can do something at. <laughs> well, you can't produce a radio show without him around. So that, when he's 98, still be back there producing the show. But did you like sleeping in yesterday? I didn't get to sleep in. I had to get up early. Because, you know, I couldn't have a nice peaceful weekend. No. Hamas has to go fire <laughs> missiles into Israel. So now I got this to deal with yeah, all day yesterday. Yeah. So, yeah, up, up early yesterday trying to evaluate the impacts of that on oil prices and bond prices and everything else. Of course, that was the big news over the weekend. And, uh, of course, that continues on today. Um, again, you know, what we're seeing is, and this is, you know, what we've talked about previously, lots of commentary, you know, about interest rates. Uh, interest rates are going up. Bond prices are going down because of the debt. It's a faulty analysis, right? There's no long-term correlation between bond yields and the amount of debt we have, because if that was the case, interest rates would already be in the 20 percentile range. Um, I'm, I'm I'm being, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but the point would be we've been increasing debt for 20 years. So it was not just the moment that all of a sudden we go, oh, wow, we've got debt. Yes, we have debt. Um, but what there is a correlation to, of course, is interest rates, inflation, and economic growth. And this is uh, the context of the article that's on our website this morning. But here's the important, we're going to talk about that some this morning. Um, but what's important here is, as we've said before, is that whenever there is an event, of uncertainty, whatever it is, whether it's a financial event, whether it is a market event, or whether it's a geopolitical event like Hamas launching missiles into Israel, right? Terrible thing, right? Terrible thing. Um, but immediately investors go, I need safety because I don't know what's going to happen. And where's the one place they go for safety? U.S. bonds. And of course, yesterday, big reversal in yields, uh, yields uh, coming down today some more. So this is the biggest reversal in yields that we've seen since the Silicon Valley bank crisis back in March. Again, whenever there's uncertainty, what's the first thing people look to? They want something that is guaranteed safe. And, and, and this is why we call the U.S. Treasury a risk-free investment, because it has a governmental guarantee of repayment. Now, of course, you can make the argument that, well, at some point, the government's just not going to pay it off. Well, yeah, we could always make that argument. It just hasn't happened in 180 years, so it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. But again, doesn't mean it can't happen. I'm not saying that, but we have to keep things in perspective of what's realistic versus, you know, kind of fantasies and realities, those type of things. So again, you know, the, the first place people look for in moments of turmoil, now this could change in a few days. Right. So uh, let's say over the next uh, three days, you know, Hamas backs down, Israel, they work everything out, whatever it is, this kind of geopolitical crisis ends. 
and our focus turns back to inflation. Well, interest rates could tick up a little bit, right? Because there's still concerns about inflation short term. But that's what drives yields, right? Yields are driven by inflation, economic growth, and wages. Now, economic growth is slowing, wages are slowing, inflation is declining. It's not, but nothing goes straight down. You're going to have bumps along the way, right? You have little upticks here and there. But the trend of all this data is certainly weaker, and ultimately that leads to a bigger decline in yields. But again, we're going to talk about that some more this morning because it's an interesting phenomenon that we live in right now. And, and again, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, contrarian investing and those type of things. But um, anyway, uh, yesterday, of course, um, kind of a, a very interesting day as, as, you know, kind of it goes, considering the news that we had over the weekend uh, coming into, into yesterday's market um, kind of action. Um, the way the market started is what you expected. The way it ended, not so much. Here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. So again, the, you know what is happening overseas certainly has not changed the, the context or tenor of the overall markets. But yesterday, the markets did open you know, kind of lower. Um, and as expected, you know, we had a big rally on Friday. And then on Monday, the markets opened lower and immediately kind of started recovering during the day as, as the markets accessed what the global or the geo or what the global risk were of the uh, conflict right now between Israel and and Gaza. So you know, as we kind of take a look at this, the markets had a very nice day, running into the first level of resistance this morning at the 20-day moving average. Uh, again, very minor level of resistance, so look for a bit more of a, of a push higher. Importantly, though, this is the one thing that we've been talking about here for the last, you know, really two, three weeks during this decline, is that as we came down and tested this 200-day moving average, which was kind of key critical support for the markets, we said that the markets had to hold that level of support right there if we were going to get this rally that we were looking for. Uh, we did hold that level of support. Um, we did come up and break uh, above this kind of initial resistance level in the markets. And importantly, though, we triggered that MACD bicycle. Now, it's a very early trigger, so we need a couple more days of follow through to make sure that trigger is going to stick, right? So sometimes it can get there and kind of fade back off if the markets don't, don't continue the rally. So if we can get some follow through rally today, and again, futures are pointing higher this morning. Not strongly so. Um, they're up about 40 points on the Dow right now. So again, it's not a real strong open. NASDAQ futures are up about 10, 11. Uh, S&P's up a, a little bit this morning. So not a real strong open this morning. Again, we're going to challenge that 20-day moving average right out of the gate this morning. Uh, can the markets get some follow through? Can we get above that? If we do that, uh, we're going to get to our target of about 4,300, which is going to be the 100-day and the 50-day uh, kind of moving average resistance level there. So again, you've got some, some decent levels of resistance on this rally. So I you know, kind of look for people that were trapped in this sell-off. There's a lot of investors kind of trapped in that decline. Look for them to sell uh, as we get closer to these levels of resistance. They're like, oh my gosh, you know, I got my money back. I'm going to get out. So look for some selling pressure to come in. But as long as we can kind of maintain this buy signal, and, and keep the market from getting grossly overbought on a real short-term basis, we do have some, some ability to work this market higher over the next month or so. Uh, and this is because we've got a few things going on. First of all, we're going to kick off earnings on Thursday, uh, really today. Uh, to, we're going to start with Pepsi out today. Um, and then this, uh, later this week, we're going to have airlines, um, United Airlines, of course, Delta, et cetera. Uh, and then get into the major banks on Friday, JP Morgan, uh, Bank of America, et cetera. Then next week is really going to kind of start earnings season. So we're going to start to shift our focus from 
international geopolitical intrigue to corporate earnings, which should help lift markets. Again, estimates have come down dramatically. That gives us the ability to have the um, kind of the millennial earnings season. Everybody gets a trophy, uh, so everybody be happy about the earnings, and then we'll start buy stock buybacks in November. So there's a lot of shorts out here against the markets right now. So at, if this market continues to get a little bit of lift to it, it's going to be fueled a bit higher by short covering. Uh, these computerized trading algorithms, these CTAs, have a lot of buying to do to cover short positions if this market rally continues. So keep a watch on this. Uh, again, buy signals in place. Um, again, we need a little bit more follow through today. So we'll have a little bit of an update on this tomorrow. Uh, but again, kind of just manage your risk accordingly for right now. But things are starting to kind of play into the normal seasonality. So that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, we will talk about, you know, kind of market psychology, investor psychology, more than anything else. Um, and talk about the overvaluation of stocks relative to bonds. That's coming up right after the break on The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, Brent, I think my uh, I think my wife's having an affair on me. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, you know, they say there's some surefire signs of when there's infidelity in a relationship, right? So, my, my wife's been working really hard lately, losing weight. Yeah. You know, and she looks fantastic. She does. Looks fantastic. It's very cute. So, you know, that's kind of the first first sign and then this her phone's been ringing all hours of the day right and she just looks at it she kind of hangs up or she puts it down right yeah. Doesn't say anything about it yeah. so you know it's kind of a second clue because they say you know one of the other signs of infidelity or you know phone calls and you know unanswered things like yes. that right so it's so very suspicious very suspicious so uh she went to she went to uh go in the kitchen yesterday and you know she wasn't paying attention left her phone laying down the phone rang i looked uh -huh. over yeah yeah yeah, some some number potential spam keeps calling <laughs> all hours of the day. And so I'm, I'm, I think I think she's got something going on with somebody named potential spam. I don't yeah. know who that is. Potential spam, not potential spaz. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, I, the, you know, all seriousness, right? These numbers, you know, I don't know, you know, like I block them all when they oh, come yeah, in, right? Yeah. It's like it's, and they this it's keep an ongoing process. Yeah. And I thought there was a whole thing about, you know, like if you told people like, you know, my number's on a do not call list, I'm not supposed to call you. Yeah. I think they have that list that they're all, yeah. oh, they're not the do not call it. Let's call those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you're supposed to stop at stop signs too, but who does yeah, that? Exactly. But it is amazing. I mean, hers, hers, her phone rings a whole lot more than mine. I don't know why, but it's like two o'clock in the morning, that thing will ring. Oh, and so. That's awful. Yeah. There, I was teasing her over the weekend, and so now she has she, phone ring. She goes, "Oh, excuse me, my, boy, my boyfriend's calling." <laughs> so, it's my other husband. Yes. Um, all right. So, talking a little bit about uh, the markets and you know, kind of what's going on. You know, it, it's interesting because you know we've we've been talking about 
you know, fixed income bonds, you know, for a while we've written numerous articles about it because there's so many questions. Uh, you know, we just don't spend any time in the financial media talking about bonds, right? We just uh, we just kind of know they're out there and they're very simple and they are the, the most simplistic investment to make. Bonds are extremely easy, but because nobody talks about them, they seem like they're very complex, right? But they're not. You know, you're just making a loan to somebody else and they're going to pay you back your principal and interest. That's it, right? And your interest rate is simply a function of what the market, you know, demands for the most part. And, you know, that interest rate is set by, you know, various things, economic growth, inflation, opportunity cost. Those are the things that kind of set the interest rate. And it's always interesting because there's all these other narratives that come about whenever there is a, a move in one direction or the other about interest rates. And, you know, it, it, the, the latest migration of these narratives is the government debt, right? Because uh, we've gone to $33 trillion in debt in the U.S. And, you know, this is obviously the reason why, you know, interest rates are going to just keep going higher from here. The only problem with that narrative is, is that, A, we've had trillions of dollars in debt for the last 40 years. And we didn't have an interest rate problem previously. So why now? Why, why is it just this magic moment we just cross some magic hurdle rate and all of a sudden everybody goes, oh, well, it's, it's the interest. Rate. It has nothing to do with the debt. Right. It's economic growth. It's inflation It's wages. That's what it is. So why are interest rates up? Interest rates are higher because if I want to make a loan to Brent. And I'm the government in this case. And Brent wants to borrow money from me or I, you know, I want to actually technically if I'm the government, Brent is the, the lender. Right. I want to borrow money from Brent and I'm the government. So Brent says, OK. I'll loan you money. I, I know you're good, right? I know you're going to pay me back. That's why treasuries are a risk-free investment. The government always pays its debt because we have a printing press. So Brent can mark off his list default risk and because he knows he's going to get paid. So what other risk does, does Brent have to factor into his loan? Well, he's got to factor in inflation. Well, inflation's definitely higher than it was a couple years ago, so I'm going to have to charge more for that. Plus, I need to make a little bit of money above inflation, right? I can't charge 3% interest rates if inflation is 3. I've got to charge something over that because I want to make some money. I mean, the whole reason that I'm loaning money to somebody is so I can make a return on my investment. So, But I also have to factor in wages because if I'm a business, I'm paying wages to people. Wages have gone up. With all these stimulus checks and shutting down the economy and everything else that we did, we created a lot of demand in the economy with fewer employees, and that, that drove wages higher. So I have wages that I have to compensate for. If I'm, a, if I'm a business owner, right, I've got to compensate for that. And I've got to compensate for economic growth because economic growth is where opportunity comes from. So if I'm going to loan money to, if Brent is going to loan money to me at some rate, he also has to evaluate, well, I could take that money and invest it into the economy and make more money, right? Opportunity. So I have to evaluate those. So that rate that is being lent at has to compensate for those things. It had nothing to do with debt. 
because I'm going to get paid back. I have no default risk. Debt, the amount of debt matters when it comes to corporate bonds. Because if a company is heavily, heavily, heavily indebted, their default risk is going up, right? We don't have that risk in the U.S. And if you want a good example of, of what I'm saying, just go look at Japan and the amount of debt that they carry. 260% of debt to GDP, right? We're at about 113. Their interest rates are near zero. So interest rates are always a function of economic growth, wages, and inflation. Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's about 85% correlation between that index and interest rates. So yeah, it can vary you know, from time to time because of, of demand supply issues. Uh, one of the things that we've got going on now. But you know, set aside those narratives that are not grounded in economic realities and focus on what actually drives yields over time, and that's the fundamental factors. But it's always interesting because you know, if we take a look at you know, what's been going on, so for the last three years, bonds have had the, a, a basically a 50% correction. Um, on the magnitude of a correction that we saw with stocks during 2001 and 2, as well as in 2008. Uh, stocks corrected by 50% both times. Um, so here we go. We we're in the middle of a, a real bear market for bonds. Uh, one of the, and this is the longest bear market on record going back to 1787 for bonds. And yet nobody wants to own bonds. Everybody wants to own stocks. So you have bonds. Now think about this for a moment. Nobody wants to own a guaranteed, pay, a guaranteed payment of an investment because it's down in price and the yield is higher. So you're making more money by holding it. So nobody wants to own that, but in turn, they want to buy overvalued stock investments, which are currently running at one of the highest valuations that we've had historically going back to the 1850s. Now, this isn't surprising because this is how investor psychology works. And, you know, this year is a good example of that. You know, it, you know, everybody's been chasing technology stocks this year, technology communication discretionary. So if we look at the top 10, you know, top 7, 10, you know, stocks. That's where all the returns this year for the market has been. Um, and, you know, this, this chart was as of uh, Friday. So I didn't, I didn't, this chart didn't capture yesterday's, yesterday's move. But as of Friday, the market cap weighted index was up 11% for the year. The equal weighted index, which strips out the impact of the market capitalization of those top 10 stocks, was negative 1% for the year. So if you've owned other stocks in the market, you've had no return this year, right? Your return has come from seven stocks primarily. But see, this is always psychology, right? We look at the S&P, we go, oh, the S&P is up you know, this much this year. So, man, you know, and, and, and bonds are down. So I want to own stocks. I don't want to own bonds. But again, as we take a look at that, this is the primary reason why over the long term, and, and Dalbar does this great study every year they put out on investor psychology and why investors consistently underperform markets over the long term. Now, that doesn't mean you should beat the market every year. You're not, Right. Nobody's going to beat the market every single year. And this is why the worst thing you can do is measure your portfolio from January the 1st to December 31st and measure your performance. It's the worst thing you can do psychologically to yourself because it's going to wind up making you chase last year's performers. And you're always going to be on the wrong side of the trade. 
look at it over a three-year period, a four-year period, a five-year period. Have I done relative to my goals? Don't worry about the market. Market has nothing to do with you. What's your goal? I want 6% a year, 5% a year, whatever the number is. Have you done over a five-year period? That's all that matters. Anything shorter than that, you're starting to just induce psychological impacts on your portfolio management. But again, we're trained by the markets to do this, right? It's like, oh, this is what the market did today and yesterday, and this is what the returns are since January the 1st. We're all geared to that, right, because of the media. Worst thing you can do for managing your money. But this is why 50% of the reasons hurting, confirmation bias, loss aversion, and we go right down the list of all the psychological investor behaviors that lead to losses and underperformance in portfolios over time. The other, the other 50% is you have your capital, you need it for something else, so you can't invest or you don't have any capital to start with. But 50% of the reasons for underperformance of people that do have capital that invest, their losses and underperformance are almost entirely related to psychological factors. Now, what does this have to do with, with bonds being undervalued? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break and some of the important points about contrarian investing. Be right back. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, welcome back to the show this morning. Talking a little bit about um, investor psychology and why investors kind of always on the wrong side of the trade you know and again it, it, timing is everything as they say and you know it's certainly understandable in the short term when things aren't working you know again since we measure our performance from january the first to december 31st if something's not working it's like oh this is terrible I, you know this investment's not working and i'm not making money in it and you know these things over here are making money so i'm going to jump over there and do that well you know typically what happens is we kind of jump from the frying pan into the fire because what was working last year is not going to work in the coming year. Good examples of this, and we've talked about, you know, we've written articles on this, we've talked about on the show back in November of 21, oil prices had gone negative and nobody wanted to own energy stocks because of, you know, ESG and climate change and all this other nonsense. And we said then, we said, look, you know, it's all about the money at the end of the day. And, you know, back in 1998, 1999, it was don't invest in sin stocks, right? We don't want to support those industries. So no gambling, no tobacco, alcohol, et cetera. Those were the best performing stocks during the dot-com crash, right? Everybody wanted to be in dot-com stocks. Nobody wanted to be in fundamentally strong companies until <laughs> where everybody was was no longer the place to be. Same thing then, you know, same thing in 2021. We said, hey, nobody, everybody hates energy. Probably a place to be going into 2022. Positive returns all year up 40%. Rest of the market was down 20. 
It's always about where the money goes. And as soon as money shifted and money started chasing energy stocks and people were making money in energy versus other stuff, guess what happened to the whole ESG theory, right? Went right out the window. It's like, ah, pfft. Same thing happened to the sin stocks, by the way. Nobody, want, you know, the whole don't invest in sin stocks died a brutal, ugly death, just like ESG did. Has nothing to do with climate change or anything else. These were narratives put in place in order to generate returns. And, you know, we talked about the fallacies of ESG numerous times. People were charging four times as much to give you an S&P index return. It made no sense. And that ultimately investors figured that out. But, you know, chasing that, you know, ESG mantra cost, wound up costing you money. Same thing in November of 2022 in the midst of the bear market. Fang stocks are dead. Right? This year, can't get enough of them. In fact, that's all that people want are the fang stocks. Nobody wants any of the other stocks. So it's always the narrative of when everybody hates something, right? That's probably the time that you want to start thinking about owning something. And, you know, particularly when it comes to bonds that have a guarantee of repayment, there is a fundamental underpinning to those investments that stocks don't have. Stocks can go to zero. Bonds can't. Not government, not treasury bonds. Uh, corporate bonds, yes. You know, uh, other type of non-guaranteed corporate, uh, community, municipal, whatever. Those bonds can go to zero if there's a default. Government bonds don't go to zero because they have a guarantee of repayment from the government. So... You know, what drives interest rates on the long end, what drives interest rates on the short end, two different things. We've talked about this numerous times before. But, you know, importantly, when we look at valuations, and we talked about stock valuations earlier, right now everybody wants to own equities, but they're super expensive. And bonds are very cheap relative to historical values and cheap relative to the economy and what's going on at the moment. And so you have this historic gap in, in valuations, but yet nobody wants to own the undervalued asset. Everybody wants to own the overvalued asset. And again, this is psychology. I'm chasing what was performing and I'm ignoring what isn't performing. And yet there's a fundamental valuation argument on bonds that is being grossly overlooked. And I know we've talked about this numerous times, but, you know, again, there's just this, con this consistent narrative of misinformation that is out in the world. And, and the latest misinformation of this is, is that, well, you know, we just have too much debt, so that means interest rates have to go higher. And that's not how it works. Because, again, bonds are a function of interest rates, economic growth, and inflation. Now, what can... What can now, if you could X out all of the psychological side of bonds, bonds would always theoretically match economic growth, wages, and inflation. So whatever that number is, that's what yields would be, right? It would be an almost exact match all the time. If the stock market didn't have any human influence into it, it would be basically a set number most of the time. Because nobody would be buying or selling. This is the, the whole, you know, the, kind of a whole fallacy of, 
you know, passive investing. Oh, we're just all going to buy stocks and we're going to hold. We're going to buy this ETF and we're all just going to hold it. We're just going to be passive. Nobody's going to buy or sell anything. If that was the case, markets would just be flatlined. They wouldn't go up or down. What makes markets go up or down and what makes bond prices go up or down is the psychological impact of people trading. And right now, you have in interest rates a detachment of bond prices versus the underlying valuation because of massive shorting. We talked about this last week. You have massive short positions, so people are selling bonds they don't even own, so that's creating selling pressure on bonds, driving prices lower, yields higher, outside of what they would be normally. It has nothing to do with the amount of debt. It's just that there is a trend of prices that these computerized trading algorithms and hedge funds and others are taking advantage of, and they're driving these yields up and prices down because they're making money with it. Now, the issue with that is, is that when it reverses, they're going to become net buyers rather than net sellers. So this whole thesis, again, is wrong that, oh, nobody wants our debt. We have just too much debt, so there's this dearth of buyers. No, there's plenty of buyers out there. Right now, they're just net sellers. But when they become net buyers because prices are reversing, they're going to fuel that price reversal higher. But this is why bond prices move up and down over time. This is why yields go up or down over time. It's the impact of what's happening within the economy and the markets. So, you know, this just goes back to the, the basic premise of, you know, contrarian investing. And, and I just want to read to you a quote, and this is one of my favorite quotes about contrarian investing because this applies specifically to where we are right now. Um, resisting and thereby achieving success as a contrarian isn't easy. Things combine to make it difficult, right? So if you've been long bonds this year, as we have, right? We have a, we have a fundamental thesis about owning bonds and portfolios. But it's been a difficult year, no doubt. Because as bond valuations kept getting cheaper and cheaper, we kept adding more and more to our bond portfolio, and we're going to continue to do that. But here's the important part of this quote. Things combined to make it difficult, including natural hurting tendencies and the pain imposed by being out of step, particularly when momentum invariably makes pro-cyclical actions look correct for a while. Sound familiar? Given the uncertain nature of the future and thus the difficulty of being confident in your position is the right one, especially as price moves against you, it's challenging and lonely to be a contrarian. And that's absolutely the case, right? It seems like right now that, well, yields just won't stop going up and bond prices won't stop going down. You've had three years of a bear market in bonds and a 50% decline. And, you know, it's interesting because if we go back to 2009, in February of 2009, I wrote an article called Eight Reasons for a Bull Market. Nobody at that moment believed we were about to have a bull market in stocks. Stocks were down 50%. The, added, the general attitude was the stocks were going to zero. There was no bottom for stocks. There was no upside for stocks. Nobody wanted to own stocks at all. And of course, March 9th, 2009 was the bottom for the next 13 years. But here we are, here we are, 
three years into a bear market, 50% decline in bond prices, and everybody believes what? There is no bottom for bond prices. They're never going up again. Psychology is a difficult factor to navigate within your portfolio, but that's where opportunity exists. Howard Marks also stated this. In good times, skepticism means recognizing the things that are too good to be true. Think about stocks. That's something everyone knows. But in bad times, it requires sensing when things are too bad to be true. People have a hard time doing that. The things that terrify other people will probably terrify you also, but to be a successful as an investor, you have to be a stalwart. After all, most of the time, the world doesn't end. And if you invest when everyone else thinks it will, you're apt to get some bargains. Howard Marks. All right. Wraps up our conversation. Stock bond evaluations. It's on the uh, website now with all the attentive charts, quotes, etc. So if there's anything in there you liked, it's on the website right now, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be back. Wrap up the show this morning. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show. So over the weekend, kind of a interesting tidbit. Um, independent parties have always had a very difficult run in presidential elections because it splits the vote. Um, and we go back and look at when Ross Perot ran for president and it split the vote on the Republicans. So, you know, you only have so many people are going to vote Republican, so many people are going to vote Democrat. And if you throw an independent in there that leans in one direction or the other, it, it splits the vote for that primary candidate. So, uh, again, back when Ross Perot ran, he took votes away from the primary uh, Republican presidential candidate, which allowed Clinton to win the election. And so it's interesting now, and the re I'm, there's a reason I'm bringing this up, is that over the weekend, Robert Kennedy Jr. announced that he left the Democrat Party to join uh, to, to basically run a campaign for president as, as, as an independent. So we now have an independent party that's not entirely an unknown factor that will potentially pull votes from one candidate or the other. Depends on, you know, kind of what what the views are. But the reason I bring this up is that coming up in January, on January the 24th, I'm going to have we're still locking down the date. So just it's going to be towards the end of January. Um, we're going to have an economic summit here in Houston, 
um, and we're going to have Greg Villieri come in to speak, and he's a political, kind of a market political analyst, and to talk about the 2024 election, what that means for markets, all that type of stuff, and you know, it'll be interesting to see what his views are on kind of this idea of a split ticket, but how this is all going to play out in terms of of, of the markets itself, et cetera. So we're putting that together now. We'll start advertising for that and open up ticket registration here soon. So um, if you're interested in coming to that event, it'll be uh, January the 24th. Um, we're going to try to have my friend Adam Taggart come in to speak as well. Um, so again, we'll have kind of a lot of, of things going on. And so it'll be, you know, from 8 a.m. 8 to noon, one o'clock, you know, we'll feature breakfast and lunch, that type of thing have a panel, talk about this stuff, answer questions, but kind of get a view on what, you know, is going to be kind of the impact to the markets as we get to next year, which is a presidential election year. So anyway, mark that down. We'll start advertising that here uh, in the next couple of weeks and uh, open up registration for that. Okay. Uh, anyway, so, you know, just talking a little bit, I know we go over, we have been going over bonds a lot lately. And again, it's just because there's so much misinformation out there. And we've, uh, again, just if you go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, you know, I keep, I, I keep swearing every week that I'm not going to write any more articles on bonds. And then somebody says something stupid. So I have to write another article about, about that. But bonds are very basic. Uh, again, I, you know, I wish we had, you know, a media channel like CNBC or something that would just at least have a small segment, you know, a couple of times a day on, you know, how bonds work, what, what are bonds, you know, kind of a, a bond segment, you know, what how, what bonds are moving, what bonds aren't moving, you know, that, that type of thing. But again, bonds are boring at the end of the day. You know, they, you know you're not going to double your money in bonds. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to have an NVIDIA uh, in bonds. <laughs> You know, but there's often great opportunity to make a lot of money in bonds if you know where to look. And there's some great opportunities that are coming up. One of those is mortgage-backed securities. And again, this is another one of those bonds that people don't understand. And when they own them, they hate them because they always show a negative return on your portfolio, right? It's your portfolio statement. They're always negative. And the reason is that when you buy a mortgage-backed security, you're buying somebody's mortgage. So Brent has, the, and, this, and, and normally what a mortgage-backed security is, it's a whole big pool of mortgages, right? So they take all these mortgages of a particular type and they bundle them up and they create a, a bond around it and then they sell you the bond. So you own a whole pool of mortgages. But very simply, what a mortgage-backed security is, it's just simply somebody's mortgage. Brent has a mortgage on his house. So he goes and buys a house. He's got a 30-year mortgage on it. He's going to pay, you know, 5% on his mortgage. Okay, I'm just throwing out numbers. So every year, you're going to get what? Now, your first thing was, is I'm going to get a 5% interest payment. Yes, you are. But the payment you get is principal and interest. What does Brent pay every month? He pays principal and interest on his mortgage. It's a 30-year bond. So at maturity, the principal has to be what? Zero. So when you own a mortgage-backed security, it's always negative because every month, what you paid for the bond, I paid $1,000 for the mortgage-backed security, right? And so the next month, I receive $2 in principal and $5 in interest, whatever the numbers are. So now the principal value of my bond is no longer $1,000, it's now $998, so when I look at my statement, I've got a $2 loss. 
Oh my gosh, I lost money. No, you didn't. It's in your cash account because you received $2 in a principal payment plus your interest. 10 years later, you still own the bond. It's still negative because you've been receiving principal payments for the last 10 years. So it's worth 60, you know, 70% of whatever it was originally. Plus you've been getting interest payments the whole time. Then Brent moves. Brent goes and buys a new house. What happens when he buys a new house? That mortgage is paid off. So your mortgage is pay- so the mortgage bond gets all of its principals back. You get your final interest payment and you're done. The average holding time for a mortgage is about seven years. It's longer right now because of where interest rates are. People aren't moving. But see, understanding where opportunities exist is very important. Right now, interest rates are very high on mortgages. So if Brent, so let's think about this for a minute, right? Why is there an opportunity in mortgage-backed securities? Because interest rates are near 7% on a 30-year bond. So Brent goes out and he says, you know, I really got to buy a house. So he buys a house, he gets a 30-year mortgage. He's paying 7% on his mortgage. So every month he's making principal and interest payments with a 7% mortgage. He's like, man, it's just killing me at home. And then interest rates eventually come down, right? So interest rates go from seven to six to five to four and a half. Pick a number. Brent, not being an entirely stupid individual, goes, wait a minute. I can refinance my mortgage at four and a half and get a lower interest rate. Now, anybody with two brain cells is going to figure that trick out pretty quick, and they're going to refinance their mortgage. So he's been in his house for three years. You go buy a mortgage-backed security today at 7%. I'm not telling you to do this. This is not a recommendation. We're just talking about opportunity. Because, see, everybody assumes right now that interest rates can only go higher. They're going to come down, especially when you have a recession. And when that happens, people are going to refi their mortgages. And there's a whole pool of people out there waiting to refi their mortgages. In fact, uh, having said that, this morning on Twitter was a statement. thought this was interesting. The National Homeowners Association, not National Homeowners Association, sorry. The National Realtors Association I am sure that they're going to form a national association of homeowners at some point um, just so they can terrorize more and more people. Um, but they sent a letter to the Federal Reserve saying that interest rates, the the restrictive level of interest rates is increasing housing unaffordability. And they are are asking the Fed to start bringing rates back down to make homes more affordable for individuals. Why? Because they want to sell more houses. They want the mortgage association wants to sell more mortgages. Can't do that at seven percent. Nobody wants to finance anything at seven. And so that whole business has died. So they're now requesting the Federal Reserve to please start cutting rates, please stop hiking rates, because we need rates to come lower so we can have some business, please. And that'll eventually happen. But if I have a mortgage-backed security at 7, I'm getting 7% interest. And as soon as Brent refies that mortgage, I get all my money back, plus my last interest payment. So mortgage-backed securities are undervalued. 
relative to where we're going to be. So there's, and this is my point, there's a lot of opportunity out there. But you have to understand the real value. On, and there's a lot of things to get into. You can get into convexity and a whole variety of other things. But at the end of the day, bonds are undervalued relative and, and very much so relative to bonds, but also relative to where we are economically. The, the market just cannot sustain higher interest rates for very long. You're going to have some type of financial event, recession, or crisis at some point. It is just a function of time, and we are likely closer to that point than not. So the, the, the point of the whole article today, and again, just looking at you know, where the world is, you know, if you're if you are absolutely appalled by what's going on in the bond market, maybe it's the time to start looking at buying something. You know, Baron the Rothschild said, you know, you buy when there's blood in the streets. Nobody wants to buy anything when everybody hates it. That's the hardest part about being a portfolio manager. It's the hardest part about doing anything is buying stuff that nobody wants because you've got to suffer through it. But that's where money is eventually made. Anyway, wraps up the show for the day. Have a great day. Be back here tomorrow with Danny Ratliff, and uh, we'll talk about what's going on in the markets after today. We'll see if this uh, market can rally a bit today. We'll see. Market futures are kind of flat right now as um, we kind of open up today again. Still, you know, concerns over what's happening overseas, but we'll see how this market fares today. Again, got resistance to deal with this morning right at the 20-day moving average. So get a little bit of a sell-off today. We'll see what happens, but we'll bring you back up to date tomorrow right here on the next edition of The Real Investment Show. Have a great day.